Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome back to the Literary Salon podcast. I'm Damien Barr, welcoming you to another Salon exclusive, where you get to be the first to hear about the upcoming books that we are most excited about. As the recent second impeachment, then Senate acquittal of Donald J. Trump shows, the divisions that run through America remain deep. Ali Benjamin's novel, The Smash Up, transports us back to the peak of Trump's presidency. It charts the emergence of the Me Too movement and Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation, offering thought-provoking insight into this too tumultuous time. Against this backdrop, we meet the central characters, Ethan and Zoe, flawed but ultimately sympathetic characters living in small-town America. They've fallen on hard times, growing apart in their marriage with a daughter, Alex struggling for their attention. Zoe is completely absorbed by social activism and commitment to her women's group, All Them Witches, while Ethan's former business partner pressures him to convince an actress to drop a lawsuit against him or else. With personal and world events exerting pressure on their fragile lives, hard truths are pushed to the fore and eventually become unavoidable. Here's Ali Benjamin reading an exclusive extract of The Smash-Up. Hi, I'm Ali Benjamin, and I'm delighted to share, exclusively for the listeners of Damien Barr's Literary Salon, this reading from my new novel, The Smash-Up. The Smash-Up is a retelling of Edith Wharton's 1911 novella, Ethan Frome, about a small-town love triangle. Both tales begin with a familiar premise, a married man tempted by a younger woman trapped between duty and passion. But while Wharton's tale is spare, simple, unfolding in midwinter isolation, the smash-up is set in 2018 during a uniquely volatile week in uniquely complicated times. It's about the pressures on one family during one week, smack dab in the middle of the madness and rage of the Trump era. The book explores all the ways that the personal is political and the political sometimes deeply, intensely personal. It examines middle-aged longing and regret while never ceasing to ask the question, what might hope look like right now? I'm going to read three brief sections. First is from the introduction about the context of the era itself. Second, as the story opens, we witness Ethan watching from a distance, his love interest Maddie. Finally, Ethan and Maddie return to the house where Ethan's wife, Zoe, meets with her women's political action group. One note, while I have written children's novels in the past, these excerpts, like the book itself, are intended for an adult audience. Introduction. What happened? Everyone asked the question, had been asking since the election. They asked while watching the news, that storm of headlines, jump-cut footage of marches and speeches and hand-sharpied cardboard, an endless swirling blizzard, a siege, really, of protests and counter-protests, action and reaction, people screaming at one another in the street, neighbor versus neighbor, friend versus friend, or too often, friends no more. We were in new territory. People had their limits. What happened? Reporters asked in small-town diners over $7.50 lunch specials, BLTs cut into neat wedges, Heinz bottles perched like microphones atop scratched formica tables. What happened? 
People asked one another in church basements, community centers, gyms, coffee shops, living rooms, where they came together to weep, process, scrawl on placards, plan the revolution. What happened? Parents snapped off NPR mid-story, not wanting to answer questions from the back seat. College students organized walkouts, staged sit-ins, blocked freeways. A giant inflatable chicken appeared behind the White House lawn, some sort of protest that no one entirely understood. Everything was some sort of protest now. What happened? What happened? What happened? What? Everyone had their answers. And as is generally the case in these situations, everyone's version of the story was a little different. It was impossible. It was inevitable. It was surreal. It was unreal. It was scandal, sea change, enthralling, a coup. It was some bad sort of smash-up, just the right or wrong elements at just the right or wrong time. Anger and alienation, misinformation and disinformation, resentment and rage, hucksters and hackers, bots and Nazis, literal Nazis, as if they hadn't been the unequivocal villains in every film for the last half century. For heaven's sake, hadn't these people ever seen Indiana Jones? It was all of these things. It was none of these things. It made no goddamn sense. That's the point. And the only thing any of us knew for sure was this. On the eighth day of the 11th month of the year of our Lord 2016, our nation, and with it the world we'd known, had turned upside down. How to wait. Maybe you're standing in the shadows, near that old spruce tree probably. Maybe needles poke the back of your neck and there's a leash in your hand and at the other end of the leash is an arthritic dog. She's patient, the old mutt, a little confused perhaps about why you've taken to standing in this particular spot at this particular time of night, but not so confused as to make a fuss. She wags her tail a few times then lowers herself, resigned, into a sit position. Good girl. Maybe it's a Tuesday night, late September, and you're standing on the ledge. The ledge isn't a real ledge, not any sort of cliff. It is, instead, a tiny dip near the bottom of Schoolhouse Hill Road. Here, after a steady half-mile downward slope, the pavement rises ever so slightly before dropping sharp and steep into its final vertiginous descent. When drivers hit the ledge a little too fast, it can feel like the car is flying off the road altogether. Kids love the sensation, the unexpected weightlessness, the stomach drop, free fall, whoosh, like a roller coaster almost. But you've never much liked roller coasters, have you? Besides, you're on foot tonight. And as it happens, if you pause here, the ledge offers the clearest view of downtown Starkfield, Massachusetts, a person will find anywhere. That's where you look now, at three figures standing on the village green. No, actually, that's not quite right. There might be three figures down there, but your eyes are fixed on just one, the girl. Blue hair, yellow street light. The girl brings something to her lips, inhales. She holds her breath, count of five. When she exhales, Wisps of smoke rise toward the sky. Diaphanous, that breath, like a prayer or a spirit escaping the body. It's unclear where her breath ends and the dark night begins. The girl hands whatever she's smoking. Oh, who are you kidding? You know exactly what she's smoking, and you wouldn't mind a little yourself, thank you very much, to one of the two guys. Tall drink of water, this kid. Clean-shaven, in two short khakis and an old man cardigan. Looks pimply, too, 
with high tops that seem too big for his stick legs. Skinny Pimple takes the joint, and just for a moment you allow yourself to imagine that you're him, that you're curling your lips over the place where Maddie's had just been. You picture lipstick marks on white paper, purple maybe, or cherry red, the color of a beating heart. Thumping music from the Flats bar, ACDC. What is it, 10.30, 10.45? Must be damn near last call by now. Somewhere else, in Brooklyn, say, which you called home a lifetime ago, the night is just getting started. In those places, people are leaving apartments. They're stepping into the street, ready to eat, drink, dance, fuck. Here in Starkfield, most of the windows have already gone black. Skinny takes a toke, passes the joint to the other guy. This kid, the one you recognize is more compact, almost stocky with a beard that's trimmer and darker than yours, not a speck of gray in his. Perhaps you reach up to feel your salt and pepper tangle, more salt than pepper, actually, its length nearly to your sternum. You don't head down the hill. Don't even consider approaching those kids. Come on, you're no dummy. You know exactly what people, neighbors would say, or even your wife, would assume if you were to get any closer. They'd think you desperate, some middle-aged fool, a modern-day proof rock, pathetic in his longing. But for the record, they'd be wrong. That's not who you are. It's not who you've ever been. This thing that's happening now, the thing that brought you here tonight and all the other nights is something else altogether, something you haven't yet put into words. Whatever it is, it feels important, urgent. The one thing you know for sure is this. It's only on these nights these walks that you can finally breathe. My God, it feels good to breathe, doesn't it? A screech owl, a guitar wail, this cool, clear night. The hour is coming. If we're counting hours, we're down to the double digits and the clock is ticking fast when this view won't be so peaceful. Mere days from now, an observer standing exactly where you are will be witness to a different scene entirely. But all that lies in the future, the unknown future, the impossible future. In, out. Maybe that's when the phone call comes. Ski masks. The women in Ethan's house are wearing some sort of ski masks. Except that's not quite right. Their head coverings aren't for winter sports. They're, what do you call them? Balaclavas, that's right. Headwear for both criminals and dissidents. The women are wearing cheap acrylic pink balaclavas, every last one of them. As if the group that calls themselves All Them Witches have, in an instant, transformed from aging small-town activists into some sort of girl gang. A posse. Goddamn lady burglars. Actually, Ethan realizes, that's not a bad idea for a story. The Burglarettes. Could be a film, maybe, or a TV series. He'll pitch the idea to Randy one of these days, if, when, things get back on track. Ethan doesn't recognize the song that's blasting through his home, but every bar seems to end with the same line. Don't play stupid, don't play dumb, vaginas where you're really from. He searches for his wife among the dancers. None of them is Zoe. All of them are Zoe. 
Ethan is struck by the odd sensation that he doesn't actually know what his wife looks like now. It doesn't help that the room is so crowded. It's not just the number of dancers. There are probably a dozen or so jammed so close they might as well be a single organism. Or that half the square footage of the first floor lies on the far side of contractor tarps. It's also that what little space they have is crammed with furniture, far more than any one family needs. Zoe's fault, that furniture. For some reason, she won't stop buying. Their contractor has explained that if their renovation is ever to move beyond the demolition phase, he'll need that next payment installment. And for that to happen, they'll need either Ethan's late brand checks or a new check from Dr. Ash or for Zoe to finish that ESPN documentary. Instead of working on the project, though, Zoe seems to spend hours shopping for furniture online as if they already have their skylights, their recessed lighting, their open floor plan. Just this afternoon, a new sofa arrived, even though their current sofa is less than two years old. Ethan had been in the process of turning away the delivery, explaining that there must be some mistake until Zoe appeared behind him. Yes, that's ours, she confirmed, leaving him standing there like an idiot, like a dope. Now, as the women dance in balaclavas, two sofas, one new, one definitely not old, both in the same dingy shade of gray, sit back to back. Everyone's sardined into a space that also includes three rolled carpets, two still covered in plastic, two coffee tables, one made of chrome and glass, an obvious disaster in the making for a family with a kid who's been diagnosed hyperactive, four armchairs, and some sort of tufted ottoman. With nowhere to move, each dancer is simply repeating the same motions over and over. It looks like a cross between the Irish Republican Army and the Charlie Brown dance scene. Ethan scans the moving figures, tries to ascertain who's who. Nearest to him is a set of gyrating hips, slow and heavy in baggy elastic waist pants. No question who this is, the oldest of the group, in her late 70s maybe. Short hair, dyed jet black, name's Eleanor. He's pretty sure it's Eleanor anyway. Could be Ellen? Elna? Something like that. Definitely begins with an E-L. Elastic, Ethan thinks. Elastic waistband. Ye shall know me by my pants. Next to her is a stick figure in athletic gear, all elbows and fibrous muscle. This can only be running, Mom, the one he sees sprinting through town, a permanent scowl on her face. Running Mom hip bumps a figure in paint-splattered jeans, the artist, no doubt. Last spring, Ethan and Zoe went to one of her openings at a gallery over in Bettsbridge. There, Ethan drank boxed wine from a plastic cup and tried to make sense of the woman's paintings, which were of meat cleavers. Canvas after canvas, nothing but meat cleavers. There were bloody meat cleavers, gleaming meat cleavers, meat cleavers on beds and on sterile trays, pairs of meat cleavers facing off, blade to shining blade. Those are the women he can pick out. The others, including his wife, are indistinguishable. Don't play stupid. Don't play dumb. Vagina's where you're really from. He longs to lean this scene, maybe disappear into his bedroom. It's right there on the first floor next to the dancing women. A first floor master so you can age in place, said the real estate listing when he and Zoe bought the place. Back when aging anywhere was an abstraction, wholly hypothetical. But Maddie's already plopping down on the brand new sofa, sprawling across it with her shoes still on. She's so comfortable everywhere she goes. Maddie pulls her sapphire hair into a loose bun on top of her head, begins tapping on her phone. There, 
the one down by Maddie's feet, torn jeans, oversized L.L. Bean sweater, holes at the elbows. That's his wife. That's so. Above this entire scene, CNN plays in silence. The screen shows a protest in the Capitol Rotunda, all women, all in black, many with duct tapes covering their mouths. The chyron at the bottom of the screen reads, Supreme Court battle heats up. Ah, yes, the newest outrage. A SCOTUS nominee who has been accused by a high school classmate of a long-ago assault. So if you enjoy a satire and a satisfying but surprising ending, then this is the book for you. The Smash Up is published by River Run and available now in all good bookshops. If you can't make it to your independent bookshop, then you can shop with us online through bookshop.org. Has anybody ever said the word bookshop so many times? But it's a fact. We have a shop. It's on bookshop.org and you can find all the books we recommend there. And while you're there, why not check out the book this novel is based on? Edith Wharton's Ethan Frome, an American classic for your bookshelf. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you again soon. In the meantime, happy reading.